From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. Progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today is Tuesday, July 19th, 2022, and we are going to study the daily reading from the Torah portion of Pinchas. So we started this yesterday. Pinchas was the guy who ended the plague when the Jewish men had um, devolved into immoral and idolatrous behavior. And there was a public act of immorality. So Pinchas went ahead and he took out the perpetrators, the Jewish prince and the Midianite princess, whose names were Zimri and Cosby, and that ended the plague. We read yesterday in the, in the beginning of the Torah portion that as a reward for Pinchas' bravery for his act of essentially love on behalf of, his, uh, of the Jewish people ending this, uh, this disaster, so he was given the covenant of peace which is not an award at a dinner. We hereby present the covenant of peace to Pinchas. No, it was actually the covenant of the kuhuna, of the priesthood, although his family, his father was a Kohen and his grandfather was the high priest, was Aaron, Aaron the Kohen, Gadol. Nonetheless, he was born before that priesthood was conferred and thus he was not, um, he was not uh, designated a Kohen until this moment in which he got this... Uh, this gift or this, um, this reward of priesthood. And then immediately after that, God tells Moses to take revenge against the Midianites. After all, they had caused uh, this plague and 24,000 people to lose their lives. So God says to Moses, make sure that at some point you go to battle against the Midianites and, uh, and, and, and give them their just desserts. That's put, us, put aside and the Torah launches into the final census. In the lifetime of Moses, God tells Moses, it's time to count the Jewish people again, um, once again. And according to Rashi, we had two interpretations why the census, either because many people had died. So now let's count how many are left. Second reason is Moses himself was about to pass away and, 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 and transfer the mantle of leadership over to Joshua. So it makes sense that when he first got the people to lead, they were counted. When he hands them back over to God, to Joshua, whatever it is, then they should also be counted again. And then the Torah went in the second reading of this Torah portion, went through all the 12 tribes, the different families, and did the total tally of the Jewish people at that time, or Jewish men, 20 to 60. And the total tally at this point was 601,730. All right, that is the recap that takes us to reading number three. So let's jump right in. I'm going to share my screen. Let's rock and roll. All right, Numbers chapter 26, verse 52. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall apportion the land. That, of course, refers to the land of Israel, not the desert. You shall apportion the land. I love how they, um, they made it capitalized in English, like the land as a, as a proper noun almost. Um, among these, the tribes that we just counted the 12 tribes as an inheritance in accordance in accordance with the number of names in other words 
please divide, God says, I don't know if he says, please divide the land of Israel amongst the 12 tribes in accordance with the families. In other words, the number of families, the number of, uh, of, of, of people in the tribe. And as, the ver- as verse 54 continues, there needs to be some sort of logical division of the land. To the large tribe, you shall give a larger inheritance. In other words, if it's more populous, give them more land. And to a smaller tribe, you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each person shall be given an inheritance according to his number. In other words, it's very logical. It's very methodical. It's very much based on a formula. So if you have a tribe, yesterday when we counted the tribes, there were tribes that had, well, Shimon, because they were decimated in the plague. They had something like 22,000 people in the tribe um, or heads of household, whereas other tribes had 40, 50, 60,000 members or households in the tribe. So obviously, if you're dealing with a tribe, hey, Sandrine, welcome. If you're dealing with a tribe that has like 22,000 households versus 65,000, they need, the 65,000, needs a larger space to live. So the, the larger tribe gets the larger inheritance, the smaller tribe gets the smaller inheritance. Everything is according to the cheshben, according to the number, according to the count. Then God switches gears. Remember, this is all God telling Moses what to do. Now God switches gears. And he says in verse 55, only through the lot or lot shall the land be apportioned. Lot implies chance, a lottery, you know, total luck. <laughs> Just draw lots. Whoever gets whatever, you know, it's kind of like, um, remember when you were a kid or maybe as an adult, I don't know, as a kid, what do we call it? It was like a grab bag thing where there were like a bunch of gifts and you randomly chose a, a like a wrap box and you got that one and you didn't know what you were getting. You know what I'm talking about? You might get a big box that has like something, you know, not some, not much in it or a smaller box with something very valuable in it. Something like that. I'm trying to remember the context. School camp. I don't know. Overnights. Who knows? Who knows? Weekend at Bernie's. Remember that? Used to be a thing. Anyway, the point is, the point is that um, the lottery implies total chance. There's no rhyme or reason it's not logically um, apportioned. It's completely random, which means that you would put in one box the name of the 12 uh, uh, slips of paper with uh, 12 slips of paper with the names of the tribes on it. You would put in another box 12 slips of paper with different states or regions of the land of Israel, and you would pick one and one. Oh, Reuven gets, I don't know, the south, whatever it is, right? Shimon gets this, Levi gets this. You would just pick up randomly and it. They would be mashed to each other. Now that seems like setting the stage for a scenario where a large tribe might end up, by chance, with a very small piece of land, i.e. not the right fit. Don't worry, there's an app for that. God made sure that that didn't happen. In other words, there needed to be an element of lottery, of the lot, of chance, and yet it it all ended up just the way it made sense. We're going to see how this apportion, uh, this um, uh, apportioning of the land or determination of the land was done by a dual method of logic and luck. Let's continue. So again, verse 55, Only through Lot shall the land be apportioned. They shall inherit it according to the names of their father's tribes. The inheritance shall be apportioned between the numerous and the few 
right? And it was how do you how do you choose between you know a large tribe and a small tribe and what they should get all according to Lot? And again, obviously, before my answer, I just dropped an answer a moment ago. No, this doesn't make sense because before we said that it should be done logically, right? Give more to who to the tribe that has more. Now it's based on a lot. Okay, so we have to figure that out. We'll look at Rashi. We'll get some clarity. Um, okay, let's actually stop right here and take a look at Rashi. You shall apportion the land among these and not to those below age 20. In other words, the, the land is divided according to the, based on the numbers that we just counted of men between 20 and 60, i.e. heads of household. Although they reach the age of 20 before the allocation of the land, for the conquest took seven years and the allocation took seven years. In other words, let me explain. At this point in history, at this moment in time, God says, the ones that we just counted, they will inherit the land, i.e. every all the males 20 and over. Under 20, though, will not inherit the land. Even though it took them 14 years to conquer and settle the land, doesn't make a difference. They don't, they, they, if they were... Um, 14 years, if they were seven years old at this point in history, at this point in time, and then it took another 14 years to settle the land. By that time, they were 20, by that time, they were 21. Doesn't matter. At this point, it was locked in who got what. Um, no one other than these 601,000 um, heads of household took a portion of the land. And if one of them had six sons, they received only their father's portion. At that point, it's static. In other words, everything is frozen in this moment. It's not a fluid division. You know, it's not like they counted and then they started the process. They didn't. They did a recount. Of who had more kids? Who had less kids? It wasn't an ongoing conversation. At this moment, that's when the allocation froze and everything was divided. At this point in time, uh, under the auspices of Moses, to the large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance. Rashi to the tribe with a large population, large meaning um, in numbers, you shall allocate a larger portion. Although the portions were unequal, since the portions were divided according to the size of the tribes, they were decided by lot. And the lot was determined by the divine spirit. Now, divine spirit means God, right? The um, Ruach HaKodesh in Hebrew, the divine spirit, as it is, ex- as it is stated explicitly in the Talmud. Elazar, the Kohen. Okay, so here's how the process worked. You ready? This is a quote from, from the Talmud. Elazar, the Kohen. He was actually the Kohen Gadol at that point because his father had passed away and uh, transferred the high priesthood to him. Elazar the Kohen was clad with the Urim and Tumim, that's the breastplate. And he said, while inspired with the divine spirit, if such and such a tribe is drawn, then such and such a territory will be allocated to. He called the lottery. He's like, if we pick Reuben, then we're going to pick the other one. And boom, that's what happened. The tribes were inscribed on 12 slips, paper, parchment, I don't know. And, 12 ter- and the 12 territories on another 12 slips. They mixed them in a box. And the chieftain of a tribe placed his hand inside and drew out two slips. Oh, interesting. Sounds like they didn't have two boxes. They had one box. Later on in history, they would discover that two boxes makes things that much more efficient. It would be weird if you put that, picked out two territories or two tribes. Nonetheless, it seems like everything was by divine coordination. So it all worked out the way it had to be. So a tribal leader picked up two slips. Right, he placed his hand inside and drew out two slips. In his hand came a slip bearing the name of his tribe. Miraculously, they always chose their tribe. 
and a slip inscribed with the territory designated for it. The lot itself cried out, saying, I am, I don't know what voice it was calling out in, I am the lot, maybe Siri, I am the lot drawn for such and such, for such and such a territory, for such and such a tribe. In other words, the lot already says that the south goes to Rubain. There you go. Um, as it says, according to the lot, or according to the lot, literally by the mouth of the lot. Now, this is very important in the Hebrew. The Hebrew says, Alpi Hagoral. P means the mouth, right? Alpi Hagoral means, well, less literally, it can mean by, by the by the decree of the of the lot, but it means literally by the mouth of the lot, by the proclamation of the lot. And so we understand this to mean literally the, the, the lottery spoke a talking lottery. That's pretty cool. Um, I don't know, you know, is it is it cool? Is it cool? We have technology today that does that. You're driving in a car, someone texts you, the next thing you know, boom, someone is reading your text. It's like, whoa, who are you? I don't know, text to speech. It happens, it's a thing. So, I mean, is it, listen, it's all a miracle, right? It's all, it's all God. But if human beings could figure out how to make text talk, you with me on this? If we can figure out how to make text talk, you, you don't think God can? God can't make a talking lottery? It's fine. God can figure that out too, right? God is uh, smarter than the, than the human being. God can certainly create that technology miracle where the lottery itself spit out a name and a territory, and it was all vocalized. There you go. Lot to text. My new app, Lot <laughs> Lottery to text. All right, let's get back inside. Let's continue the Rashi. Since some areas, ooh, now we're getting into some uh, interesting, interesting ideas here. Since some areas, in other words, some portions of the land of Israel were superior to others, I mean, like in any real estate, ocean, um, joy, you were talking about ocean, uh, ocean proximity. Location, location, location. Location, right? So that's it with real estate. So since some areas were superior to others, the land was not divided solely according to measurements. This is very interesting. But it was assessed an inferior piece of land sufficient to sow a car, which is a certain amount of grain, was equivalent to a superior piece sufficient to sow a saw, a 30th of a car. It all depended on the value of the soil. I love that. I love that. <laughs> in other words, in other words, it's very important. Okay, hold on. Let me, let me, let, let's talk. Let's talk for a second. You know, you're buying a house in Atlanta. And so you check Zillow. And um, Zillow tells you that, you know, this house is X number of square feet. The property is X number of square feet. And the price is, you know, whatever. And it says, it does the, a quick calculation, how much money per square foot? Is it 200? Is it 250? Is it 300? Is it 400? Whatever. How much money per square foot? That's an algorithm. And, and, and you would say, okay, good. So that's going to be across the board. So there's a certain allocation per square foot. There's how many people per square foot. So if you have 60,000 people, right, 60,000 people, you need X number of footage, whereas if you have 20,000, you need less. Great. I mean, it's not people's, it's households. Whatever. That's not the only cheshven. It's not the only calculation. It, it, it's, it's 3D. It's not 2D. It's three-dimensional. There's one more dimension here. It's not only people, and it's not only number of people and square footage. There's a third dimension, and that is the quality 
of the land, location or whatever. Because, and here's my X factor, start looking at Zillow in Manhattan and you tell me how much that is per square foot, right? How many people you can put in per square foot? Just different types of building. And how valuable it is per square foot, which means like this. If you're giving, you know, in Atlanta, how big is an acre? Is that like 25,000 square feet? Is that what an acre is? Ish? 30,000? Something, something like that? All right, whatever. Something around that. So if you can get in, I don't know, I'm totally making up numbers now. How many people could you fit on an acre of land? You can fit, how many homes could you fit in an acre? You could probably fit, um, oh, it depends if it's in town or, or in the suburbs, right? In the suburbs, one house. In the real, in the, in the, the real big suburbs, one house. In, in the city, you know, many more can squeeze in. So you have to figure out, you know, how many people can fit in a certain part of land and how much, how, how much value that has. So the point is like this, that every land is going to be different. That's what Rashi says. Some lands are superior. What does that mean? Either because it's got a better view, whatever, but it also means that the land itself, for whatever reason, is more valuable, which means that you're just not going to get an acre. It's not going to be acre, acre. It's not going to be one formula that says, you know, um, 10 homes per acre, right? 10, 10 homes per acre, wherever it is. So depending on, on, on how big the tribe is, that's, that's the formula, 10 homes per acre. That's not the case. 10 homes per acre here, 20 homes per acre over there. It's more valuable. You're getting less land. That's it. Straight up, you're going to get less land. Does that make sense? I think it's probably, it's, it's, I'm probably saying obvious things. Now, the point is, I'm just trying to explain Rashi. There's a third dimension. It's number of people, area of land, quality of land. Those three factors coincide or collide or work together um, to provide the formula for the land allocation. That's what's going on over here. Okay, back inside. Let me share my screen. Um, okay, only through Lot shall the, this shall the land be a portion, shall inherit according to the names of their father's tribes. This refers to those who came out of Egypt. Scripture treats this inheritance differently from all other inheritance mentioned in the Torah. For in the case of all other inheritances, the living inherit the dead. Whereas here, the dead inherit the living. Hmm, what does that mean? Rashi asks rhetorically, how is this? What does that mean? Two brothers who came out of Egypt, who had sons that entered the land. One had one son, and the other had three. The one received one portion, and the three received three. As it says, you shall apportion the land among these. The inheritance of these four reverts to their grandfather who left Egypt, and they divided everything equally. This is the meaning of what is said. They shall inherit according to the names of their father's tribes. For after the sons received it, it was divided up according to the fathers who had left Egypt. Whereas had they apportioned it originally according to the number of who came out of Egypt, these four would not have received four, but only two portions. Now, however, they received four portions. Basically, we're going by the kids, not by the initial parents who came out of Egypt. We're not going by the initial ones who came out of Egypt, but their children. Therefore, the one who had more progeny would get larger, a larger allocation more portions of the land as opposed to less. And that's what it means that the dead inherit the living. In other words, the, the, the calculation of those who passed on is actually determined by the next generation. Whereas usually it's the next generation gets whatever the previous generation left them. Here it works the other way. The previous generation, the allocation is divided based on how many kids they had 
In other words, you look uh, um, further to understand how the allocation goes backwards. Okay, only through lot, ach, begoro, the word ach, which means only or but or however, excludes Joshua and Caleb from this measure of allocation. In other words, they were not allocated according to the tribe. Their, their, their portions, specifically these families, these individuals and their families, Joshua and Caleb, those were the two kosher spies. They got an out, they, they got land outside of the, of the lottery. And so it says they gave Hebron, Hebron to Caleb as Moses had spoken. And further says, according to the word of, of the Lord, he gave him the city he had requested. They got, um, Caleb got Hebron. And Joshua got what? The city he had requested. Okay, whichever city that was, he was also excluded. He, they cut him a deal outside the lottery. Okay, of their father's tribes, ex- excluding proselytes and Gentile slaves, they did not um, get uh, in on the on the girl on the on the lot. Um, the inheritance shall be apportioned between the numerous according to lot. Um, literally, as we said before. By the mouth of the lot, the lot spoke out, as I explained above, verse 54. This tells us that it was divine, sorry, divided by the divine spirit. This is why it says in accordance with the Lord's, the Lord's word. Okay, so I want to just quickly, quickly um, summarize all this. And the summary is that there were two forms of division. There was of the land. There was a logical division wherein we took account we understand the needs of the tribes and the tribal families. We understand the land that we're dealing with. And it makes sense that this large tribe gets this large area or maybe gets a smaller area, but in a more sought after, you know, a hotter uh, location, whatever it is, right? So that, that that's figured out logically. And then they drew lots. And the lot said, this one to this land, this one to that land. The question is asked, why do you need both systems? Either do it logically or do with divine, uh, you know, divine magic. Why do you need both? So there's a beautiful answer that's given, an answer that I've certainly shared before in other classes and other contexts, but it's very, very important to the conversation today and really to the conversation about our lives always. And that is, hey, Mark. Good to see you, Mark. Um, and that is the idea, the reason why the land was divided, both logically and according to the lottery, to the, to the word of God, as it were, is to tell us that in life, even when, even in 2022, when we make logical calculations of where we should live and what we should do and all of these types of logistical conversations, right? Like which tribe should be in which land, these types of logistical conversations, we believe that there's a stamp of approval from God's word that we're being guided by the divine Holy Spirit. I mean, that sounds a little weird, but but by the divine spirit, by Ruach HaKodesh. Not that we are prophets, not that we are tzaddikim and rebbes, that we have this type of spiritual vision, but we believe that even to this day, God, um, famously as the as the Shem Tov taught, God guides the footsteps of human beings to where they need to be, which means that even as we make logical, rational, you know, well thought through considerations, we believe that those decisions are blessed by God and that there's a talking lottery saying, good job, you belong there, you do this, you do that, etc. We believe that all of that 
is also ordained even as we use our logic. In other words, let me break this down a little bit more finer, uh, a little bit more fine. If we had thought, sorry, if the Torah would only have told us that the land was divided by logical considerations, then we would know that you and I are capable of making logical determinations of where and how and what we should live our lives. And that's kosher. But is it part of the divine plan? We don't know. I mean, it's, it's you got to do what you got to do. You got to make your best decision. After that, you know, who knows if that's the right thing or the wrong thing? We don't know. If the land was only divided according to the divine word of the, of, of the lottery, we would have thought that it's only when God speaks to you that you know. It's, if there's a talking lottery, then you know that, uh, you know, somehow God communicates with you. Then you know that it's divinely ordained. Otherwise, you're literally on your own. But because the Torah does both, the Torah says the lamb was apportioned logically, rationally, and it was also apportioned by the talking lottery, by divine decree. What that tells us is that even our logical considerations, ultimately we believe and we pray and we hope, are also blessed by the divine plan and by God's providence as well. So, so oftentimes the question is asked, how do we reconcile free choice with divine providence? I feel like somebody asked that in a, re- in a recent course. How do we reconcile divine providence and free choice? If God is ordaining everything, if God has a master plan, etc., then where do we come in? What's our choice? The answer is, one of the answers is, that God's providence we don't know about. So that doesn't influence our decision. How can you be influenced if you don't know about it? In other words, you're influenced by what you know. The fact that you can make any choice that you wish is absolutely true. You are free to choose. In other words, there's no knowledge. There's no awareness. There's no compulsion that's forcing your hand. And yet, what you and I choose is ultimately part of the master plan. We made a logical decision and God's lottery said that is the way it was meant to be. Now, this is true for better or for worse, which means that something that when we make a negative decision, it's also ordained, as it were. And what, so what does that mean? God wants us to make a negative decision? No. God wants us to, to rebound or to pivot from that, neg- from that place, place of negativity for something greater. But the bottom line is everything. Ultimately, all of our footsteps are ordained, guided, and thus on some level blessed by the divine talking lottery. So last week we had a talking donkey. This week we have a talking lottery. There's a lot of things that are talking nowadays. A lot of things lately that are talking. Okay. Um, Back inside. Okay. Let's start verse 57 in a moment. Oh, speaking of 57, as a guy from Pittsburgh, you hear the number 57. What do you think about? Immediately you think about Heinz, right? You guys with me on this? Heinz 57, 57 varieties. It's like, at least in Pittsburgh headquarters of Heinz, like a whole thing, 57. Anyway, um, the, the Steelers, since they built their new stadium uh, years ago, I think 21 years ago, it's been called Heinz Field. Well, that naming right just ran out. And the Steelers announced they're going with another name of some like random investment company from out west. Stokely. Huh? Stokely. Say it again? Stokely. Is it? Oh, I don't know what that is. Anyway. Um, oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. The competition. 
Man, the big squeeze. No, so anyway, so um, I still remember the Heinz commercials where the guy, before plastic squeeze bottles, right? The glass bottle where the guy puts it on top of the roof and it's so slow coming out. Remember those the ketchup bottles that would never come out? So it was so slow, the guy like ran down the stairs of the apartment building and then came with his hot dog and that's right when it started coming out. Obviously, you know, commercials, Hollywood, but it was always a great commercial. So why do I say that? Huh? Yeah, they played the music anticipation. Yeah, and the anticipation, ta- yeah, something like that. Yeah, and they and the tagline was the best things come to those who wait. That was like that was like the tagline. Um, okay, so now with that in mind, total totally off topic. Let's jump into verse fifty-seven. Oh, look at that. These were the numbers of the Levites. Aha! Now after we've counted and talked about the division of the land. For the 12 tribes. Now we talk about the Levites. Again, the Levites were always left out of these types of military age, military eligible censuses. And so now we count the Levites separately. These were the number of the Levites according to their families, the family of the Gershonites from Gershon, the family of the Kahatites from Kahat, the family of the Merarites from Merari. These were the families of Levi, the family of the Libnites. The family of the Hebronites, the family of the Machlites, the family of the Mushites, the family of the Korachites. And Kahat begot Amram. Aha, look at that. Kahat begot Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Yocheved, the daughter of Levi, whom her mother had born to Levi in Egypt. She was born at the border when they arrived. Yeah, at the wall. She bore to Amram the following children. Aaron. Moses, and their sister, Miriam. All right. Born to Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Elazar, and Itamar. Well, Nadab and Abihu, as we know, died when they offered up an unauthorized fire before the Lord. And those counted, well, I mean, we're counting the Levites and counting the Kahat family. We went off on a bit of a tangent. I don't know if it's a tangent. We spoke about the family of Amram because that's Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam's family. And we spoke about Nadab and Abihu and like all that stuff. Okay. But now let's get back to the numbers. And those counted of them, so the the Kahat Levite families, or the Levite Kahat family, however you want to say it, they were 23,000, every male aged one month and upward, for they were not counted among the children of Israel, since no inheritance was given them among the children of Israel. Now, I wonder if these 23,000 were of all the Levite families or just Kahat. It's possible it's possible that these are all the Levites. All the Levites, all the Levite males from one month and up were 23,000. Mark, as I always uh, remind you, you're a Levite. This is yes. your family. This is your mishpacha we're talking about. All right. Um, back inside. This was the census of Moses and Elazar the Kohen, who counted the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. That's where Moses will ultimately pass away right in that location. They were at the final stop before Israel. Among these, listen to this, among these counted right now, there was no man who had been included in the census of Moses and Aaron when they counted the children of Israel, when they counted the children of Israel in the Sinai desert. In other words, 40 years prior, when they did the, 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 the last census, no one that was counted then was counted now. Let me just quickly explain. As you recall, the Jews wandered for 40 years. 
And the reason was that that entire original generation should pass away. And the new generation steps in and they're going to go into Israel. And the Torah is doubling down on this and, and verifying and saying that there was no one counted. I mean, the Levites, not forget the Levites, because they weren't ever uh, decreed to die in the desert. But of the 12 Israelite tribes, right, of the 12 tribes, the 601,730 um, uh, men between 20 and 60, none of them were part of that previous census 40 years prior that was done in the Sinai Desert. Back inside, in other words, all of that generation had passed away. For the Lord and the Torah. Yeah. It didn't, according to Rashi. It didn't what? The men uh, died, but the women didn't. Right. Correct. Yeah. There was no man. Exactly. There was no man um, who was counted now that was counted then. All the men that were counted then had passed away. Why? Why? So the Torah reminds us. For the Lord had said to them, they shall surely die in the desert. And no one was left of them but Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and of course Moses. But Moses is also not going to make it into, uh, well, Moses is a Levite anyway, so he's not part of the decree, whatever. Point is, Caleb and Joshua are the exception. Everyone else was the rule. And no one, no one from that previous count, previous generation, had survived to this point. Let's look at Rashi. Um Rashi, Rashi, we talk about the Levites. These were the family of Levi. Missing here, Rashi does some fact-checking, are the family of the uh, Shimeites, the family of the Uzielites, and part of the family of the Yitzharites. Okay? In other words, they're not mentioned. The question is, why not? They were mentioned in Exodus. The, the, the family of Levi, of the Levites, they had more... Names, then here, what happened to those families? Rashi leaves us hanging. Rashi leaves us without an answer over here. He's saying it's just missing from this count, but they were counted in the previous census. Okay, whom her mother... Yes. I've got a footnote that says Rashi, the verse 13, uh, says that by the time of the census, these Levite families no longer existed. Hmm. Well, there you go. Rashi answered already in a previous Rashi. We must have skipped over that one. I think that was a long Rashi that we skipped over. Yes. Um, Rashi and verse 13. Let's, so let's actually look at that. Um, so Rashi explains that there were certain Levite families that were not counted. Here we go. The Levites. Now, Rashi explains why. Rashi explains why. There were individuals that after, after um, Aaron died. Okay, take a look. Take a look. Take a look. I'm, I'm going to show We skipped this because it was a long Rashi and I think we're running out of time, whatever. But it's important. I think it's important to have this general knowledge. Um, when Aaron died, Rashi says, this is earlier. When Aaron died, the clouds of glory withdrew. The Canaanites or the Amalekites they were really Amalek, they came to fight against Israel. And the Israelites, the Jewish people, basically panicked. And many of them, or a number of them, actually started running back, re retreating, retreating and retraced, like going back from their journeys. So listen to this. I I'm skipping some of, the, some of the scriptural, like sources, source text, and just getting to the narrative here. Um, they turned back, and the Levites pursued them to bring them back. Look at that. 
basically some tribes or some families uh, from the tribes started retreating and running away. Well, the Levites chased after them. And it looks like it ended up in a war, in a battle of Levite versus uh, uh, runners. Kill, they ended up killing seven of, the, of their families. The Levites themselves lost four families in the battle. The families of the Shimeites and the Uzielites and of the three sons of Yitzhar, only the family of the Korachites is mentioned. And I do not know the identity of the fourth one. Basically, um, there was this bit of a civil war where some were running and the Levites tried to pull them back and say, you got to come back. And then they started fighting. And then a bunch of people lost their lives, including Levites. Uh, uh, Rabbi Tanchuma expounds that they, the seven Israelite families, fell in the plague in connection with Balaam. But this cannot be. Okay, all right, well, he debunks it. Okay, whatever it is. Point is that that explains the Rashi that we just covered here, um, which tells us that there were Levite families missing. Um, one second. This one right here, missing here are the family of Shimeites, family of Uzlis, part of the family of the Yitzharites. Yeah, those missing Levite families, they were killed um, in the attempt to bring back the tribes that had run away. Okay, um, Yocheved uh, was born to Levi in Egypt. Her birth, the birth of Moses' mom and Aaron's mom and Miriam's mom, right, their mother, her birth took place in Egypt, but not her conception. She gave birth to her, her mother gave birth to her as they entered the walls by the border. And she completed the number of 70, for if you count them individually, you only find 69. So there were 69 Jews um, from the or from the family of Yaakov, of Jacob, that came down. And then there were 70. What happened? Yocheved was born right at the border, at passport control. They were not counted among the children of Israel um, who were counted from the age of 20 and upward. For what reason? Since no inheritance was given to them, the Levites did not get an inheritance. And those who were counted from the age of 20 were recipients of an inheritance. It says each person shall be given an inheritance. We read the census, and then we said all of them are going to get an inheritance, and then the Levites are counted later. Why? Because they're not getting an inheritance because they're not of military age, just, or, or they're not of military status. They're just a different, different category of community. Um, among these, there was no man. Uh, that had been included in the previous census. But Rashi emphasized, I say this all the time. You've heard me say this like a broken record. But here we have an actual Rashi that says this. But the women were not included in the decree. Enacted in the aftermath of the spies. For they cherished the land. They loved the land of Israel. They wanted to go in. The women never got hoodwinked into this you know, revolt against the, you know, the men said, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Whereas the women said, give us a portion. We want the land. Those guys, whatever, those jokers, let them go where they go. We want the land. This is why the passage of Tzalafla's daughters follows you. Rashi explains the juxtaposition with the very next piece. That's why in the very next section that we're going to learn right now, in a moment, the Torah tells us that Tzalafla's daughters, he passed away, he had no sons. The daughter said, hey, wait a second. The land is being divided based on male that were counted, males that were counted in the census, 20 and up. Males. We don't have any males in the family. Dad died. There's only us daughters. We're going to get cut out? No way. We want a portion of the land. So the juxtaposition here, you know, is, well, first of all, it makes sense because we counted the people, talked about dividing the land, and now Salafka's daughters are raising their hands saying, hello, don't forget about us. 
Um, but it also works with this because the Torah tells us that the men, none of these men had been around before because all those men died, but not the women. The women always love the land. And the proof is, take a look at the very next section in the Torah. Chapter 27, verse number one. Let's jump in. This will take us to the end of the reading. The daughters of Tzalavchar, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh. Okay, so they came from the tribe of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. Okay, so Joseph, son Manasseh, son Machir, son Gilead, son Hefer, son Tzalavchar, had a bunch of daughters. It's a lot of generations also. Great, 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 great granddaughters, etc. So uh, these, yeah, they were daughters of Lafchad. So they came forward. They came forward. They stepped up. To who? Moses and uh, Elazar, as we'll see soon. But they came forward. Now, what were their names? So his daughter's names were Machla, Noah, um, not Noah, like the biblical, like the art guy, different spelling. Machla, Noah, Chagla, Milka, and Tirza. Five very special, very righteous women who were just in love with the land and were not going to get cut out of this land. They stood before Moses and before Elazar the Kohen and before the chieftains and the entire congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they called a press conference where they, everyone was around basically. And they said the following, Our father died in the desert, but he was not in the assembly that banded together against the Lord in Korach's assembly. He was not, he, he died. He did not die as part of the attempted coup of Korach, but he died for his own sin. And he had no sons. So he didn't die like all the Jews of that generation died. No, he died for his sin, but it wasn't the revolt against you and God. But he he, he died and he left no sons, only us, five daughters. And look at how they phrased the request. Lama Yigara, why should our father's name be eliminated from his family because he had no son? Give us a portion along with our father's brothers. Yes, you're dividing it based on male head of households, men 20 to 60 of this new generation. That's the algorithm. That was figured out, and the, 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 the intention was, look, men, head of household, so they'll give to their family, to their wives, their children, whatever the, whatever the calculation was. But bottom line is, our father deserved a piece of land. He left no sons, so he's not counted, no sons are counted, so we're off the grid. Our family, our unit is now off the grid. That's not fair. We want to be counted. We want a piece of the land. It's, good. it's a very, very good claim. Very good, I don't know what you would call it, very good uh, petition. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. The commentators wonder, why didn't... I... No, listen, spoiler alert. God says, yeah, give them the land, <laughs> of course. <laughs> don't cut them out, give them the land. That's, that's the answer, we'll read it tomorrow. We're not going to do it today. Um, and we'll get into that. But the, the commentaries wonder, why didn't Moses bring their case before the Lord? Why didn't he just answer it himself? It seems fairly, I, you know, I don't, I don't think you can take anything for granted and say it's obvious, but it it makes sense. You know, here's a... Well, yeah. There, there is, there is a, a catch, though. The catch is their father had said he was the wood gap. That's what I was reading here. 
Right. And so he was, uh, as Rashi says, he was one of the entranced, uh, he was, uh, he, because they were entranced. Uh, so I guess stubborn whatever. So I guess that was the catch. It wasn't that cut and dry. It wasn't. There were was some questions about the family. Okay, okay. Yeah. But, but not, so, okay, good, good. So God answers, yes, give it to them. But there's another, there's, another, there's another answer that I want to share that I think is beautiful. Look what they said. Our father died for his own sin. He was not part of the, of the revolt of Korach. He did not die in Korach's crew. In other words, they basically told Moses, our dad, he had his own issues, but he was a fan of yours. He, was, he liked you. He didn't, he didn't start, oh, once you flatter a judge... He has to recuse himself. No, really, that's that's one of the lessons that we learn. Really, a lesson till this very day. That if a judge, or by the way, a rabbi also, if you if you're in the Hebrew, we call it negev adover. If you have any type of, um, how do you translate that? Negev adover means personal um, prejudice or whatever it is. Right? Any prejudice in the case or any personal, like uh, you know. Flattery. Oh, you know, like I, I was, I've always been a fan of yours. Now, will you judge my case? Nope, not anymore. You just flat. You, you just said that your dad was a Moses fan. He wore his "I love Moses" T-shirt. You know, he had Moses um, merch. No, I, I, I now I got to take it to God. I can't. I, I now can't adjudicate. The Talmud says, based on this, that there were rabbis. There's a story of a fellow who comes to town. And he sees an old rabbi who's struggling, you know, I don't know, walking, it's, it's wet. He helps him like cross, uh, you know, a puddle or a pond or uh, whatever, something, some body of water. And uh, the rabbi says, thank you. Appreciate your help. The next day in court, this rabbi was a judge. He sees this guy as one of the litigants. He had come to town for a court case. He says, I'm off your case. You, you helped me out yesterday. There's no way I can, that's it, I'm out. You have, um, I think our country also, I think our legal system respects that conflict of interest and, and does its best to make sure there's no conflict of interest. But I think Torah sets the standard for this. And we see that Moses, the moment they said that our father was not one of those that, 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 that revolted against you, I'm out. Take it to God. I can't, I can't judge. I mean, because if he says, sure, you can have the land, how do we know that that's the, what the law is and not because... You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I, you, you, just, it, you don't know. The optics are bad. That's it. You're done. You just have to step away from the case. Let's jump back in. Let's take a look at Rashi's as we close out today's reading. Oh, it, yeah. Rabbi Art. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a footnote on that. It says, regarding the Pesach Shani offering, the wood gatherer and the cursor... That's, I don't know if he's saying one. We find that Moses did not know the halakha until God told him what was to be done. And it goes on. But it says, nevertheless, we do not find in any of the, those places that Moses actually asked God for decision. As soon as Moses declared his ignorance of the matter, God spoke to him and taught him the halakha. Here, however, Moses has to bring their case before Hashem before the halakha was revealed to him. That he had to do so here indicates that this law had purposely been concealed from him. That's a yeah. yeah. It's a commentary. It's a Maral of Prague, actually. The great Maral who created the Golem. He wrote. He wrote a commentary on Rashi. That's uh, that's him, Gurari. Um, so, 
What's interesting about that is that that's another reason. In other words, the other reason given why Moses took it to God is because he had not yet been taught the law. He just had he had no idea. It's not like he he learned it from God and and um, and then he forgot it and then he had to go to God because he forgot it or some other reason. No, he had never been taught. He had never been taught this law um, prior. Okay, let's jump into Rashi from verse one. Um, so we we trace the lineage. Daughters of Tzalafchot, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Makar, son of Manasha, the son of Yosef. So why does it have to say Manasha, the son of Joseph? We know that Manasha is Manasha. We know who Manasha is. Manasha and Ephraim, the two sons of Joseph. Why, why do we go back all the way up to Joseph? So Rashi asked that. Why is it said? Has it not already said the son of Manasha? Why do we need to add Joseph? But to inform you that Joseph cherished the land, as it says, and you shall bring up my bones. And his daughters cherished the land. As it says, give us a portion. In other words, we're, we're understanding where their fierce desire for Israel came from. Joseph, before he died in Egypt, he said, make sure when you leave, get me out of here, take me to the promised land. And, there, and his great, 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 whatever granddaughters, uh, the daughters of Slavchat said the same thing. We want a piece of the land. It was in the family. It was in their blood to love the land of Israel. Um, hence, they were of Joseph's family in spirit. And to teach you that they who are mentioned in the verse were all righteous. For anyone whose deeds and whose father's deeds are not clearly described, but scripture specifies one of them to trace his genealogy for praise, he is a righteous man, the son of a righteous man. But if it traces his genealogy for shame, as for example, Ishmael, the son of Netanya, the son of Elishama came, it is known that all those mentioned with him were wicked people. Okay, whatever. Basically, since we're going daughters of Tzalafgad and all the way back to Joseph, and Joseph loved the land, and these Women, these five daughters of Slavka, they love the land as well. Um, that means that everyone in between, they were all righteous. They were all tzaddikim. They were all very special people. Machla Noah. Uh, later, it says Machla Tirza in a different order. So here it lists the five daughters of Tzalafchad in one order. Later on, it lists a different order. Rashi says the reason for the switcheroo, this teaches us that they were all equal one to each other. Therefore, Scripture changes the order. Don't think that we're ranking them in order of righteousness, that this one was better than this one, better than that one. No, we're mixing up the order. They were all equally righteous. They were all equally special. They stood before Moses and, and Elazar. Uh, the statement that they stood before Elazar informs us that they stood before them only in the 40th year after Aaron's death. Right. So this question, this request came at the end of the journey, the end of the 40 years. Before Moses and afterwards before Elazar, is it possible that if Moses did not know the law and Elazar did know? So why would they why would they present the case to Moses and Elazar? Once you ask Moses, Elazar, if Moses knows, great. If he doesn't, what, you're going to go to Elazar? How would Elazar know the law? What does that even mean? Why'd they go to two? Um, but transpose the verse and expand it for written before Elazar and before Moses. So Rashi says, okay, reverse it. What it means is they went before Elazar, and then when Elazar didn't know, they escalated it to Moses. These are the words of Rabbi Yoshia. Abachanan said in the name of Rabbi Lazar, they were sitting in the study hall and they stood before all of them. Oh, so one answer is no, they went to Lazar first and then Moshe. The other answer is they were all standing together and the, the, these, uh, these women came in and they, 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 uh, they put forth their request. Our father died, but he was not. Since they were not going to say that he died for his own, sorry, since they were going to say that he died for his own sin, they had to say that it was not for the sin of those who grumbled right, the complainers, and that he was not in Korah's company who incited the people against the Holy and Blessed of He, but he died for his own sin alone. He did not cause others to sin with him. He, yes, he sinned. Yes, he died, but he was not a, 
uh, a rabble rouser, nor was he a stir, a pot stir. Um, Rabbi Kiva says he was the wood gatherer. Rabbi Shimon says he was among those who ascended the mountain defiantly. So either it was the wood gatherer who gathered wood on Shabbos, um, or he was one of those who, after the decree of the four years of wandering came out, um, the people said, no, we're going to go anyway into the land, and they were, they were killed, and they shouldn't have gone against God's will, but he went. So according to that opinion, Rabbi Shimon uh, says he was one of those guys. Okay, why should our father's name be eliminated? We are instead of a son. And if females are not considered offspring, let her mother be taken and levered marriage by her brother-in-law. Interesting. Basically, we count. Make sure we count. Because he had no son, but if he had a son, they would not have made, they would have made no claim at all. This teaches that they were intelligent women. In other words, they understood that if there was a son, then the son would inherit. They would ultimately get married and they would have their husband's territory. In other words, let me just explain what Rashi's saying here. They were intelligent women. What does that mean? In other words, their claim, what was their claim? What was not their claim? Their claim wasn't, we want a piece of land. They would get a piece of land anyway. Let's understand what they were asking, what they weren't asking for. They would get a piece of land. How do I know this? Because they, I mean, by all accounts, you know, that based on the family structure, then they would get married and they would have their husband's land. They, that would be their land. They would all live together on that land. Whatever land their husband's family was from, that's, where they, that's the land they would get. So then why, what's the whole, so then what's the problem? The problem is that their father is now being eliminated from the whole, from the whole picture, from the whole um, division of the land. That's not fair to the father's legacy. Our father died. He wasn't a bad guy, right? So we should, we should inherit his portion. In other words, don't cut him out. If there was a son, then the son would have had the father's portion, and then he would, then the legacy would have continued. But now that the father, that 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 our father left no son, now that whole family is going to be eliminated from history. That's not right. That's not right. That was their claim. That was their claim. So Moses brought their case. This law, the law looted him, and here he was punished for crowning himself with authority by saying, "In the case that is too difficult for you, bring to me." Right? He said. You know, when he set up the system of courts, you know, whatever you guys can't answer, I'll answer. God says, okay, you'll have some questions you can't answer either. Um, another interpretation of this passage ought to have been written through Moses, but Salafchad's daughters were meritorious, so it was written through them. In other words, Moses should have known it, but he didn't in order to allow them to step up and to take this incredible mitzvah, um, which is another mitzvah in the Torah that came through them, through their request, through their knocking on the door. All right, what's the moral of the story? I'm going to end, yeah. Um, oh, I'm gonna, uh, the moral of the story for me is when the door is closed, knock on the door. Knock on the door, especially if, it's, if you have a, a, a good claim. Knock on the door. Don't just be out, stand on the outside and say, well, you know, I wanted to come in and I can't. And the door's locked. You know, um, uh, fortune favors the bold. Is that, a, is that a line? Did I just make that up? I don't know. But fortune favors the bold. Be as kanamer. Be bold as a leopard. It says in Pirkei Avot. Yes, you also have to be humble, sure, but humility should not be confused with lack of self-confidence and lack of drive. We have to be humble, we have to be, etc., but we also have to have drive, ambition, and know what we want and pursue it. All of those are all of those are, are true, all of the above. The daughters of Slavka teach us how to be um, how to be um, how to know what you want and how to go for what you want with determination and with um, clarity of purpose and strength and inner fortitude etc and they got what they wanted ultimately as we'll see tomorrow they got the land of their father's portion all right that's it for today so message be bold be bold yes go i also 
also think that this story, this portion, is a moment in time. So it's like two brothers, one has one son, one has three sons. Um, it, the, each son gets the portion. So mm-hmm. with the women, it's the same thing. We are a moment in time. We may be married in the future, but at this moment in time, our name has to be represented. Love it. Love it. Yes. Yes, they stand up. They demand recognition and representation. They get it. And this opens up a new, a new mitzvah in Torah, which is amazing. All right. Good. Great to see everybody. I'm going to run. Um, Joy, Sarah, Sandrine, Mark. It's great to see you all. Great to study together. We'll see you tomorrow. Same bad time, same bad channel. Take care. See you then. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.